All right. Good morning, Grace Covenant. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. If you will turn in your Bibles to, surprise, surprise, the book of Ephesians. We're going to be in here for a while longer, but today we're going to take a slightly different turn in Ephesians. Um, Paul takes a slightly different turn in his letter, and so we're going to follow along that path. So Ephesians chapter 3, if you would. We're going to be in verses 1 through 7. Uh, This is going to be a two-part message, so part two will be next week. Um, But the first 13 verses, Paul goes into some detail here about his call, uh, about the mystery that is Christ, um, and and the the things that go along with his particular um, mission to the Gentiles. And so we're going to go into this together in the first seven verses. So if you would, stand with me in honor of the one who gave us this word as we read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It reads, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, if indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together this morning on the first day of the week as we celebrate in remembrance of your resurrection on this Lord's Day that we get to come and study your gracious, uh, redemptive plan in history, how you reached into human history and you saved a particular people to yourself. We have the privilege of seeing one of the the great instruments that you used uh, along that plan and that path. I pray that we will take the example of Paul and point everything to you um, after we see how he sees himself before you. I pray you'll remove any nerves from me. Um, be the, the Simply make me the mouthpiece of your word, and may the Spirit apply your word to our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. So, <clears throat> as we went through Ephesians, we started when we launched Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And so we've come a long ways already, so we're beginning chapter 3. We're almost halfway through the book. And Paul has started in Ephesians chapter 1. He began with a uh, description, a detailed description of the salvific work of Christ. Um, God choosing whom he would save before the foundations of the world. Um, God redeeming them to himself uh, and what that entails. And then in chapter 2, he began to move into the idea uh, and explaining that salvation is, yes, impactful on an individual level, but God also rectifies groups of people to himself. So the Jew and Gentile, the great mystery that the Gentiles were, in fact, part of the redemptive plan of God, unlike most of the Jews would have thought at that particular time in history. And now he's going to begin in chapter 3, and he's going to explain his position, his um, small part. We would say it's a very large part, but to Paul's mind, a very small part in helping to establish the church of those days. And I want to give a little bit of context around 
when Paul wrote this and what he was writing about to help us understand and view what he's writing about himself. And so a couple of things to keep in mind is first, Paul is writing this uh, from a prison cell. Um, and so that will be uh, imperative to know here in a few moments that he wrote Ephesians from a prison back to Ephesus. And we'll see why that's important momentarily. Secondly, Paul is using a very specific writing style, especially in these first few verses. So in the first seven verses, Paul uses what's called inclusio. You can write that down if you want. But it's a big word that simply means um, the Hebrew writing style of bracketing what you're saying with the same phrase on both ends, meaning that you read everything in that particular bracket through the lens of those phrases. And so I'm going to point that out in verse 2. It says, of God's grace. And in verse 7, it says, of God's grace. And so Paul wants us to understand that everything he talks about between verses 1 and 7, or between those brackets, is included and to be read through the lens of God's grace. And so Paul's point, although pointing out what he does, the apostolic office, the, the responsibility he had, the revelations that God gave him, all these things that he's going to talk about, he wants us to understand that this is of grace and grace alone. That he is a steward of God's grace by God's grace. And so it's very important that we understand this writing style, lest we think that Paul is simply writing this as a pat himself on the back kind of moment. Because in reality, this is simply a digression. He is taking away from his main argument, which was God saves people, and he's taking a moment to point out that God uses even someone like me. And next week we're going to be able to, to look more in more detail about the specific language that Paul uses about himself. But I wanted to set the stage for how we have to interpret this passage, because if we forget that Paul is speaking that everything he is talking about is by grace, for grace, we're going to lose sight of what he's actually saying. So it's very important to keep that in the back of your mind. So as we dig in here, um, I did forget to mention earlier, there are uh, sermon outlines in the back. If you'd like to take notes and track along there, you're welcome to grab one. So verse 1.1 1. 1. Actually, the title of the message, let me start with that. I apologize. So the title of the message is For This Reason, um, part one. So for this reason. So Paul is going to take a second, and he's going to begin by speaking about him being a prisoner of Christ. So point one, if you have your sermon outline, prisoner of Christ. And he begins with the small transitionary phrase, for this reason. And basically what he's saying is, let me explain why. So he has just come off the fact that he's explaining at the end of chapter 2 that the Jew and the Gentile are been brought into a, essentially what is a new human race. The first Adam failed to have the, the human race that would be in unison in, in relationship with God. The second Adam, being Christ, has now redeemed people unto himself and has made this new human race beyond all votes of the of the Jews or the Gentiles. Neither one of them wanted to be part of this new human race. But Paul explaining through the change of the Holy Spirit inside of the individual person, he has in fact rectified and torn down that dividing line, if you remember last week, the dividing partition between Jew and Gentile. And now he's going to say, here's why. Let me explain why I know about these things. And so he begins with verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So I want to start by understanding Paul, how he is addressing himself. First, he chooses to address himself by Paul, the name given to him by God. The name Paul actually means small. By definition, Paul means small. 
we need to understand that that is actually significant because his original name in Hebrew was Saul. And if you remember right, he was named after King Saul, who was head and shoulders above every other man in the congregation. So he went from being big Saul to being small Paul. And he chose to address himself in that way to keep the humility to understand that he, as a small man, was chosen by God for this work. But then he moves on to call himself the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Notice it doesn't say prisoner for Jesus Christ. Remember earlier when I mentioned he wrote this from a Roman prison? This is not Paul saying that I'm, I'm a prisoner for Christ or I'm, I'm in the Roman prison. And often in those days, he would actually be chained to someone. So I'm not chained to this guard for Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And that is a dramatically different meaning. So when he's a prisoner in Roman, uh, the Roman prison, you would think that that would be the primary focus of what he's writing about. Hey guys, look, I have this message. It's so important and so rocks the world and I'm in prison over it. But his focus is on being a prisoner of Christ. When was the last time that we looked upon ourselves as prisoners of Christ? It is true that by grace we have been set free from the prison of sin, that we have been raised to newness of life, dead bones regenerated into new life. We were old creatures putting aside the old man. We are new creatures in Christ putting on his righteousness. But just because we have been set free from sin, that we are no longer prisoners of sin, does not mean we are not prisoners of something. Romans 6 talks about, we are no longer slaves to righteous, of, of unrighteousness, excuse me. We are slaves to righteousness. We are no longer prisoners of sin. We are prisoners of Christ. And I would challenge you to view yourself the way Paul does. A prisoner of Christ. Because that's the most important thing to Paul. He wants them to understand that he is of Christ. He is setting up the next few verses so that they understand who he is and how he views himself that the facts of what he's about to display in the plan of God is by God's grace and because of Christ alone. And the thing about it is, Paul has already been with the Ephesians. Paul actually made three missionary journeys as recorded in Acts. He didn't stay around Jerusalem. He wasn't specifically commissioned by Christ to be the greatest, uh, or excuse me, he was specifically commissioned by Christ to be the greatest theologian and evangelist in church history. But how he viewed himself was a prisoner of Christ. And I'm driving this home because if the greatest theologian that has ever lived views himself as a prisoner of Christ, should we not consider ourselves thusly? And he wants to, the, the, the church, the, the church at Ephesus, to understand this. And this is, again, just after arguing that the Jews and the Gentiles are now one in chapter 2. And now he's going to explain, similarly to what Christ did, the mystery of Christ using the, the lens of Jesus who walked this earth to point back to the Old Testament and understand what they were writing about. Luke 24, 27, if you guys remember, Christ did this exact same thing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Beginning in the Old Testament, he, he started with the prophets and Moses, and he interpreted to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And Paul is going to do the same thing. But again, I'm going to reiterate before I move on from this first point, 
Paul views himself as small Paul, prisoner of Christ. I am simply a tool in someone else's hand. So let's ensure that we can apply that to ourselves. Know who your master is. You are no longer a slave or prisoner to sin. By God's grace, he has broken those chains. And now you are free from that to live according to your new master. To live according to the one that you are chained to. Again, keep in mind, in Roman prisons, especially on house arrest, you would most likely be chained, a rather long chain, but most likely be chained to an actual soldier. Who are you chained to now? Christ. Who is the one that you answer to now? Christ. Christ is your master. And what a beautiful master he is. Now as we move on to point two, verses two and three, it is the steward of grace. So not only do we see Paul as a prisoner of Christ, but we see him as a steward of grace. Look with me, if you will, Ephesians 3, verses 2 and 3. It reads, If indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before, in brief. So let's break down these couple of verses and see what Paul is saying here. <clears throat> First, he's letting them know, he's letting the Ephesians know that he is a steward of grace. And in the original language here, the idea of if indeed you heard is him being rhetorical. He knows they've heard. He spent years with them. They know exactly what he's saying. And so he's pointing them back. You already know that I am a steward of God's grace. But it's very interesting when you start doing a deep dive on that word steward, the original language in, in English actually what makes a better um, implication of what that word truly means is actually administrator. Administrator. So in our common English minds, administrator is the idea of the office and tasks of an administrator. So when we think of an administrator, let's think of an executive assistant or an administrator of, of, a, of someone who owns a company. That administrator can do the things that the boss can, right? That administrator can use the name that the boss uses to purchase things, right? How many know what I'm talking about, right? An administrator. They are... are, are tasked and given the name. They don't own the company, but they can make decisions on behalf of the company. They don't own the, the money or the credit cards that the company has. The boss pays the bills. He's the ultimate one who's in control, but the administrator gets to represent the boss. And so Paul is saying, I'm a steward of God's grace, which was given to me for you. So Paul is not the one who gives grace to the Gentiles, he is simply the administrator of God's grace to show them the beautiful redemptive power of Christ. And this is a heavy task. Paul is assigned with an extremely heavy task. He repeats this in Colossians. It's believed that Ephesians and Colossians were written at roughly the same time and were even sent along with Philemon with a messenger to the attended, intended addressees. And so Colossians 1.25, he says the same idea, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. This idea of stewardship is foremost on Paul's mind. He, we have to understand he saw himself as simply a carrier, an administrator of God's redemptive power. He did not see himself as anything but small Paul, prisoner of Christ, administrator or steward of the grace of God. But there's something we have to keep in mind here 
later on in his life, Paul, um, his last imprisonment, right before he was killed, wrote the pastoral epistles. Did you know that Paul is not the only steward of God's grace? Let's look at 1 Timothy. If you'll turn there with me, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Timothy. And Paul is writing these pastoral epistles at the very end of his life. He's trying to encourage the elder that he has established at Ephesus. Timothy was, in fact, serving at the very body um, of which he's writing this, this letter that we're studying through. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me, if you will. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my genuine child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I exhorted you when going to Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may command certain ones not to teach a different doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God, which is by faith. But the goal of our command is if you continue, he continues to explain the goal of what they are to do. So Paul is saying that Timothy is a steward. And in essence, as you continue through Timothy and look in context, he's writing that Timothy teach the other men of the body the same things that he was taught. And so by logical conclusion, we know that the church themselves, the believer, the body of Christ, every believer is a steward of the grace of God. Did you know that you have the same responsibility that Paul does? To be a steward of the grace of God, to teach your children. Our Sunday school this morning, we talked about family worship. To teach your family, family about the grace of God. Who is your closest neighbor? Probably the one sharing your house with. And to love them as yourself is to steward the grace of God and teach them about what Christ has done. We have to understand that we have the weighty responsibility, just as Paul did, in stewarding God's grace, which was given to us, that we might also be the tool that God uses to give that grace to others. And in verse 3, he goes on to explain in more detail that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. If we look in context of verse 4, we know that mystery is expanded later to be the mystery of Christ. So in verse 3, we know the mystery he's speaking about is related to the mystery of Christ himself. Now, oftentimes when we read this, we tend to read it in the context of our Western, modern American, 2023 20, mind of thinking this is a Sherlock Holmes mystery and Watson's going to come in here and explain to us what's going on, right? The mystery that's actually being spoken of here, these sleeves are just not staying up today. <clears throat> the actual mystery that, that Paul is talking about is the mystery that is an enigma. It's this idea, or excuse me, not an, an, not an enigma. It is this idea that it was there all along, but had to be revealed by God. This mystery of Christ is the idea that he was prophesied, he was pointed to with the entire Old Testament. All of Jewish scripture from Genesis to Malachi points forward to Christ. And truly, the Jews of that day knew there was supposed to be a Messiah. They were waiting. There was prophecies in Daniel. There was about a 70-year gap there 
of the time that Christ walked the earth when they were expecting a Messiah. In fact, there was an uprise in spiritual activity. You'll see recordings of demonic activity. There was an uptick in false messiahs. They knew that there was supposed to be a Messiah. But the mystery of Christ being revealed is that the Messiah was not coming to bring the rest of the world into the temple, in to be circumcised, in to follow the Mosaic law. The mystery of Christ revealed is that by grace and by grace alone, God redeemed even the Gentiles into the family of God. And that, that mystery of Christ is that we are sitting here because God chose to redeem all nations and bless all nations, as he promised Abraham so long ago, in the work of Christ. And that Christ did not come, the, the, the common Jewish mindset of those days was that the Messiah would come as a Davidic conqueror to take out the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Is that what Christ did? He established the kingdom of God, there's no doubt. But not in the way that the Jews said would happen or what their expectations were. And so we see that the mystery of Christ is in fact God working through a carpenter who lived a perfect life, who gave himself for those who would be saved. Took the very wrath of God upon himself when he was absolutely innocent, a perfect lamb of God, making the fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the foreshadowings that the entire Old Testament would contain pointed to this carpenter, Jesus. That is a mystery. That is indeed a mystery. It's still a mystery, a mystery to us, is it not? Is it still not mysterious to us? When we look at the New Testament, yes, we get to read the entire Old Testament through the lens of Christ, but it's still mind-boggling, at least it is to me, that God would send himself to redeem a particular people to himself and then rectify two of the most hated groups, Jews and Gentiles, in himself into one new human race that would worship him forever. That is only something God could come up with. And so Paul is saying, this mystery has been given to me. And he encourages them to go back and read it again here in just a minute. It says at the end of verse 3, as I wrote before in brief, he's referring to chapter 2. It's been argued that, that there was a lost letter to Ephesians. There's no historical reason to think that, other than literally this verse right here. So as opposed to adding in scripture, let's think Paul just wrote in brief in chapter 2 the mystery of Christ, did he not? Explaining the Jew and Gentile, the, the, the removal of the partition, everything that God has done, the redemptive plan. He just wrote about it. So he says, this mystery that I just finished writing about. Remember when he said, for this reason, in chapter 1, verse 1? Or chapter 3, verse 1, excuse me? He's explaining why he just wrote all this stuff. Go back and read it. I just wrote it in brief. What I want us to take away from this, these two verses of this particular text as fascinating as the mystery of Christ is, and we should study it and we need to look at it, I want you to understand that you as a believer in Christ are also a steward of the grace of God. This mystery that we are so mind blown by, that we can't comprehend within ourselves, if it weren't for the Spirit revealing it to us within us, we would not be able to even understand what we're reading. This gracious gift of God is something that has been put on you as a gracious gift, by grace, to give grace. Have I said grace enough times yet? 
let us carry that as Paul did. Let us look to the greatest theologian that has ever lived. Let's look to the greatest evangelist and take a cue from him and go, he is a steward and this is how he lived, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the majority of the New Testament. Let us echo him in our lives. Let's move on to verses four through six. If you have the notes, point number three is revealer of mysteries. He's a revealer of mysteries, verses four through six. It reads, about which when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was made known to the sons of men as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. But the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the mystery of Christ in this way. The mystery of Christ is just another way of referring to the whole message of the gospel or to the whole truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ himself, for he in reality is the gospel. That is the best summary out of everything I've explained, and that is true, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ ultimately is the gospel. And so when we start breaking down these three verses from this passage, I want us to first look at verse 4, about which when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul is telling them to go study what he is telling them. Go look at what I wrote to you. He's having to defend his apostolic appointment for a reason. Do you realize in a Roman prison in those days, and just I think as we would think today in our own day, if someone was giving you a message, a, a, a countercultural message, like th think of how counter the idea of Jew and Gentiles being rectified are, how counter that is to the, to, the, to the common man. And then suddenly that person winds up in prison. Would you question their message just a little bit? Would you think to yourself, maybe he's not actually telling us the truth. Maybe God didn't really choose him. Because if God really did choose him, wouldn't he be like the, the Pharisees? where they have a big following and they have all kinds of disciples and people want to come from all over the world to come and study. Like, we get this mentality of Christian um, elitism or, or, or Christian um, fame. Um, celebrity, there's that. I couldn't think of the word. Christian celebrity, right? We get this idea. Even today we get this idea of Christian celebrity. What does so-and-so say about this? And, and so if we think of Paul and all the missionary journeys he's had, he spent years traveling three different times around the known world giving the gospel, and suddenly he finds himself in prison. He wants to ensure that those who he spent years with in Ephesus are not going to question his message because he's in prison. Does that make verses 1 through 7 make a little bit more sense? He's not doing this to puff himself up. He's doing this to prove that God did, in fact, choose him. He's doing this to prove that the mystery of Christ that, he's been revealed, that has been revealed to him is in fact the truth. And he wants them to go understand it better by studying and reading what he has written. He encouraged the study of this ministry. Again, not to puff himself up. If you read this without the ideas of grace, without the ideas of Christ working in him, you can absolutely come to the conclusion that Paul thought an awful lot about himself. Holy apostles, I got the revelation, Here's what I'm saying. Go back and study my writings. But when we understand the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Paul 
was given these words to write as a defense, as an establishment of his apostolic office, and he had to do this through nearly all of his epistles. If you think through Galatians, Corinthians, Colossians, over and over and over again, Paul defends his apostleship because he was not in it for the street cred. He was not in it for the celebrity. He was not in it for the following. He was a tool used by a gracious God given by grace the power to endure all the things that he endured so that this message would go out as God established his church. So I want us to continue to keep in the back of our minds the inclusio, and we'll come back to it again when we wrap up, of God's grace being the beginning and end of this passage. He is bracketing everything he's saying by God's grace. And we think in, into the spiritual prestige and, and things like that that we have to combat in our day. Paul had to combat those same types of things. But not only does he point to the grace of God to defend what he is teaching, his own hermeneutic or his own way of translating the Old Testament and explaining to the believers, the Gentiles, the Jews, everyone that he would speak to, the mystery of Christ revealed in the Old Testament also proved who he was and what he was saying. The mystery of Christ revealed, when you look to the Old Testament, the very way that Paul was able to pull different texts from the Old Testament and use the scripture that the Jews knew about, use the only scripture that anyone had at that time to establish Christ correctly, is another facet of proving that Paul's message came from a holy God. In fact, it's been said in this way, there are three things in this mystery that Paul points to. One is the unity of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ, leading to the unity of all things in the cosmos under Christ. Is that an Old Testament message? It is. Number two, the revelation of God's plan. Is God's plan evident in the Old Testament? It is. Number three, the demonstration of God's superabundant grace in Christ, an unsearchable wisdom that redeems his people. Is God's wisdom displayed in the Old Testament? It is. And so God, Paul's own interpretive method is another foundational principle that proves that his message is the truth. He is trying to relay to this group of Gentiles in Ephesus in one of the most pagan cities on the face of the planet. They had the seventh wonder of the world, the temple of Artemis, in the midst of their cities, in the midst of the city. He is trying to give them confidence in the message that he gave them so that they would stand firmly on the mystery of Christ. And he goes on in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. We talked last week about the phrase apostles and prophets. Whenever Paul says apostles and prophets, he's talking about New Testament um, saints who have been given the, the words of truth. When he talks about prophets and apostles, that's the Old Testament. He's referencing prophets first and apostles second. So we know he's talking about the New Testament, holy apostles and prophets. So he's talking about those who would know and foundationally give the doctrines of Christ. But notice a key phrase that Paul uses throughout Ephesians. We're going to look at it in a minute. In the Spirit. 
I've beaten a dead horse and far into Old Testament and we're seeing the mystery of Christ. I think I've gotten that point across, but I want us to draw to the end of verse 5 in the Spirit. This mystery was not revealed until after the day of Pentecost. Think about that for just a minute. The mystery of the Old Testament was not revealed until the Spirit came and indwelt the followers of Christ in its entirety, as we can understand it. Did Christ preach and teach as he was on? Yes, of course. But the, the, the church itself being established on the day of Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit, this mystery of Christ could not be generally revealed to all who would profess Christ without the indwelling of the Spirit. Paul is making very evident throughout Ephesians, and make note of this because I want you guys to see this throughout the entire book, that everything is by the Spirit and His power. So we look at first in verses, uh, chapter 1 and verse 13 of Ephesians. Paul says that we are sealed in the Spirit, talking about our salvation. Then he talks about the Jew and Gentile being in Christ in the Spirit in verses two, uh, chapter 2 and verse 18. Then in chapter 3 and verse 16, it says that the Spirit giving the believer, the Spirit gives the believer the strength to live as they have been called to live. And then verse uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, he goes on to say that the Spirit is the assurance and evidence of the promised inheritance of God. The Spirit indwelling the believer is everything within us. That is the very power of a holy and righteous God living in us to empower us to live according to how we are to live. The Spirit regenerates us, brings us out of spiritual darkness and death. The Spirit brings us to a point of living and giving us the strength that we need to live out the life that God has called us to. And the Spirit is the very assurance of the salvation. The indwelling Spirit is the very assurance of salvation that God has worked in your life. And we can see this unfolding work, this unfolding plan all throughout the book of Acts in Paul's life. Acts chapters 9 through 20 details Paul's life and the work of the Spirit in him. Now lest you hear me saying that we can't trust the Old Testament or we need to as some very very heretical people have said, unhitch the Old Testament from our lives. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? But what I'm saying is, the Old, Old Testament has to be interpreted through the lens of Christ. If you do not interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, you have Judaism, which is a works-based religion, a cult practice of the temple. I mean cult by just the religious practices, not cult as in Mormonism, so just to clarify but if you don't interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, through the power of the Spirit within you, you end up with a false, incomplete, redemptive plan. Because the great mystery of Christ is that Christ used the nation of Israel to bring about the redemption of a particular people. I'm back at that again. See how Paul continues to bring the gospel back into this? And then as he goes on into verse 6, he's going to give us more details of what the Gentiles have become a part of. Verse 6 says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus 
through the gospel. Everyone find chapter 2 and verse 12 of Ephesians for me. Chapter 2 and verse 12. We went through this a couple weeks ago. It's been a few weeks. But this is, if you remember, Paul establishing the dire condition of the Gentiles. The absolute dire conditions. And verse 2, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2 reads, Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the traditionship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So we know what the Gentiles' condition was before the Spirit. But now in verse 6 of chapter 3, Paul is going to give us the exact fulfillment that crosses out the dire condition of Gentiles point by point. So verse 12 of chapter 2, remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Verse 6 of chapter 3, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are no longer alienated. Chapter 12, or excuse me, verse 12 of chapter 2. It goes on to say, strangers to the covenants of promise. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Fellow members of the body. They are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. They are in the covenant the covenant of grace. Verse 12, once again, having no hope and without God in this world. Verse 6, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Every point of contention that the Gentiles lived with was handled in Christ and Christ alone. Paul makes the argument from chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 3, verse 6, and shows us the redemptive power of Christ in the gospel. And that means all of us who are believers in God, who are believers in Christ for the forgiveness of sins by faith alone, in Him alone, we too are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body. And the amazing thing about that members of the body that original, that word is used nowhere else outside of the Bible. Paul literally made up a word to describe members of the body so that we could understand exactly what he means. He made up a word. The best English words we can come up with these days are eat. Think about the, 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 the description of the power of the Spirit in Paul as he literally makes up a word to get across his meaning because we are fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise. If that doesn't give you assurance in Christ, I don't know what will. For the gospel message in Christ Jesus is that he took the wrath of God upon himself that we could not bear, so that sinners would be reconciled to a holy God. And not only did he take that wrath, but then he imputed onto us his righteousness so that we would be considered holy before a holy God. We are no longer strangers to the covenants of promises, having no hope. Our hope is in Christ through the gospel message. And that's what I want you to apply from this three verses, four through six, from these three verses. Everything he points out to here, everything he's trying to lay down, comes back and boils down to Christ through the gospel. The promise that we have, we are heirs. We are co-heirs with the Son of God. Amen? Amen. 
And so receiving this amazing gift should cause us to rest in Christ, to understand that we've been brought into the body of Christ through the gospel, the new, the good news of Christ, and that we have been made new, that we rest in his work. Our final point this morning is number four, receiver of grace. We're going to look at verse seven. Everything we've talked about, Paul, and I, I, I tried very hard to make sure that Paul, that we understand Paul was pointing to Christ. He knows it's of grace. But all the amazing things that Paul did, he summarizes in verse 7. He says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So remember that inclusio, that, that tool that he uses, he brings it back in to close out the bracket of which I was made. So what was it he was made? He was made a minister of the gospel. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to him by the power of God. We've talked about several things that Paul was doing, but I want to talk for just a moment about what Paul wasn't doing. Because sometimes I think we can miss this aspect of what Paul didn't do. He's coming down and saying, but this is by the gift of grace. If there's anyone in the biblical record, in my opinion, that would have a leg to stand on that say, I sacrificed enough that I have earned something from God, it would be Paul. After shipwrecks, being whipped 39 times on multiple occasions, and everyone knows, I hope everyone knows, but I'll remind us, 39 times was one lash, one lash short of a death sentence. 40 lashes was considered a death sentence. So 39 lashes on multiple occasions, shipwrecks, beatings, persecutions. He had to escape through walls of cities by windows and ropes to keep from being murdered. But all of this is not in Paul's mind. He points back to unmerited favor. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. Something you cannot earn. Something that is not yours that you can say, God owes me because I did X, Y, and Z. Unmerited favor. He points back to grace. And this is an exact opposition to the suicide bomber of the Islamic faith or the kamikaze pilot of World War II. This pushes back against the idea of the Buddhist monks' asceticism who would, who would beat their bodies in submission. You ever seen the carving of them? They're, they're emaciated. They haven't eaten because they think if they punish themselves enough, they'll merit favor with God. But Paul doesn't do that. Where does he point to Christ? Where does he see his value? In the unmerited favor of God through his grace in Christ, through his power. Think of that for just a moment with me. He is pointing back to the working of God's power to even fulfill the stewardship and ministry that he's been given. So he starts with grace in the inclusio. He ends with grace and says, I have to have the power to even do the things that I've been assigned to do. I've been assigned by grace excuse me, I've been assigned to steward the grace by grace, by his power supporting me. It is all of Christ. 
And that's what I want to close with today is understanding that Paul is pointing everything back to Christ. That Paul's stewardship is a call and a gift of grace because of Christ. That Paul points his unmerited favor back to Christ. That Paul points the very ability to do the things that he has been called to do to be the power of God himself within him in the spirit. This, these seven verses is not about Paul. Have I made it abundantly clear in my interpretation for you that Paul is talking about Christ. Every time he brings up something about himself, he says, but the Spirit, but Christ, because of grace, in his power. The facts of the matter are Paul was used mightily by God. That is the fact. But that is not what Paul is pointing towards. He is pointing towards his unmerited favor, the grace of God and the power working in him to display this amazing mystery. To understand that we as Gentiles are in this room together because of the same grace. Paul is establishing his authority of his office to point to Christ. That's what Paul is doing. This is not, this is not some puff-up brag reel of Paul. He wants us to see his Savior. He wants us to see Christ. He starts off by saying, I'm small and a prisoner of Christ. And all these things that God assigned me to do that has been done is because of him and his grace. So I want you to reflect on that today. I want you to reflect on the greatest theologian and evangelist looking to Christ and Christ alone. And I want you to think to yourself, am I trusting in Christ and Christ alone and what he has done in me? Or am I trusting in my own works and the things that I suffer for myself? Am I trusting that I've earned merit from a holy God? Or am I putting my faith in resting in what Christ has done? Resting in his accomplished work on the cross. Resting in his grace and his grace alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity to come together and study and be pointed back to you over and over again in our text today. We thank you for the unmerited favor that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the work of the Spirit, applying that to our lives, helping us to understand your word, helping to strengthen us to live out the calling that you would have us to live out. We rest completely in your power and completely on your grace. I pray that you would work in us through your spirit so that our, our desires would be the exact reflection of what Paul is doing and pointing to you and all that we do. Help us to point our families to you. Help us to point our coworkers to you. And, and ultimately, Lord, help us to point a dying world to you. For you are the remedy for sin. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen.